Of all the games I played as a kid growing up, my least favorite was hide and seek. And that's because it was always stressful. It didn't matter if I was looking for someone or I was hiding or seeking or hiding. I remember being stressed trying to find my brothers and sisters because whenever they would hide, right when I would be just about close to finding them, they would jump out and scare me. And so it was stressful. And so I was nervous the whole time looking for them. And then, then when, when they looked for me, it was stressful as well because they counted too fast. You, know, you, did, you ever know a fast counter? In other words, count to 20, but they count so fast. And then finally they say, ready or not, here I come. And I was never ready. And so I would always like jump into a pile of clothes and try to cover up. My feet would be hanging out and they'd be like, hey, good try, uh, found you. And it was just not that big of a deal. But I think I really despise that game because one day, my brother and sister told me to hide. And they told me, hey, look, you hide, we'll find you. And he's like, okay. So they gave me some time, and I went, and I felt like I found a really, really good place. And that place was between the washer and the dryer, where we had the hamper, the clothes hamper. And I pulled everything out, stuck myself down in the hamper, and then I covered myself up with dirty clothes. It was stinky, hot, and cramped, but I thought, this was a great place, they'll never find me. And they never did. They never did. In fact, I was in there for a while, and more time went by, more time went by, and, and I was thinking to myself, man, they, they didn't find me. And I, it felt like an hour had gone by. I have no idea how much time went by, but finally I got out of the hamper, and I began to kind of walk around looking for my brother and sister. I went to the living room, and there they were playing a game that we had gotten. It was an Atari game back in the early 70s, and it was called Atari, and it was a game called Pong. And if uh, you're a young person here and you don't know what Pong is, go ahead and Google that, look at it. I mean, the graphics are amazing in Pong. Uh, you're going to be blown away by it. And, uh, and so I realized at that particular moment, they never tried to seek me out at all. They were only doing this because there were only two people that could play at the same time and they didn't want to share with me. So that's why they sent me off to be able to hide. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are of the game hide and seek, but I will tell you that one day Jesus Christ is coming again. And he will seek us all out, and he will judge the living and the dead. That thought of Jesus coming and finding us and seeking us out, for some, uh, that is a wonderful thought, fantastic thought. We look forward to that particular day when he comes and he turns everything that is upside down in this world right side up, and it's going to be a glorious day. For others, it is a stressful thought, because they realize and they know that they still remain in their sin. And the terrifying thought is, is no matter how much they may want to hide from that reality, the truth is Jesus will seek us all out. Beloved, you and I are living in a time, in a, in a, in a waiting period. We're waiting on the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when I say waiting, I don't mean spending our time being inactive. I mean actively waiting upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so far in chapter 12, the Bible has really told us how we ought not to be waiting. He's told us over and over again that we ought not to spend our time worrying about what people think about us or worried about material things and if we can get enough and can we hold on to enough. And and in fact, we shouldn't be worrying at all. We should be anxious about nothing, he said. But instead, now what he does is after showing us how not to wait upon his return... He gives us two ways in which we should be waiting for his return. Just two things this morning before we take of the Lord's Supper. First of all, we ought to be ready. We ought to be ready. Look at verse 35. 
The Bible says, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and he knocks. Now, Jesus is using a, a, a wedding as an analogy of how you and I ought to be waiting upon the Lord. Weddings for the first century Jews were big events like they are for us today. It's one of the greatest events in somebody's life. So they just really pulled out all the stops. They really knew how to celebrate. In fact, some of the festivities would last up to seven days. But there was no specific time when it would end. It was just usually when the money ran out or the food ran out or whatever. Uh, when it ran out, then it was over. But again, nobody knew what time that was going to be. So they would go to the house. They would go back. The bridegroom would take his bride back to their home. And, and, and that means that the servants that were in the home had to be ready for their arrival. Uh, they had to be ready because it, would just, it just wouldn't be a good look if you're taking your bride to your house and you can't get in it. Right? This is just not going to be good. So he doesn't want to sit there. He doesn't want to knock on the door. Nobody coming to the door and go, wow, this is all embarrassing for all of us. Instead, the servants there had to be ready for his arrival. And it tells how he was to be ready. They were to be dressed for action, Jesus says. And basically what he's talking about is their dress. The men in the first century, Jewish men, would wear these really long robes. I hope that fashion comes back. That would be awesome. Really long robes. I mean, you go to bed and you wake up and you don't have to change your clothes. It's kind of like we're... A, of course, I don't know who really wears robes anymore, but I mean, you could if you wanted to. And so, um, so what they would do is they were great, but the problem was it was very hard to do anything in them. It was hard to really even kneel down. It was hard to walk. It was hard. You certainly couldn't run in them. So to be, it would impede your progress. So in order to make sure that they were ready for service, they could move into action. They would take those robes and they would tuck them in into their belt so that their legs would be freed up. So they could move. And this is what Jesus is telling them to do. Why? Because they had to be ready to be able to answer the door. They had to be ready and, and willing to let the master in and to be able to serve him once he had come in. But it's more than just really them being ready in that particular capacity, dressed for action. It also dealt with their lamps. He says that they would have their lamps ready. The lamps of the time were just small little kind of bowl-like lamps. And, and they would have a wick that would need to be treated, had to be trimmed to make sure that it was working appropriately. There would have to be enough oil in the lamp. And again, what was it for? To make sure there was light so that you could see the master coming. You could recognize him when he came. And then not only that, but when he came in, there would be enough light for the master to come in. You could begin to serve him and meet whatever needs that he would want. So the emphasis here is really an expectation. It's to be in a continual permanent state of knowing that at any time the master could come. And so you, you never forget about that. That's certainly at least part of what he's talking about here. And what we find is, is that the story takes this unexpected turn. Here are the servants getting ready for the bridegroom uh, to, 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 to come back and to be able to serve him, but that's not what happens at all. When he comes and he finds out that they were ready for him, he turns the tables, like literally turns the tables. And what he does is he takes his garments, he begins to tuck them in, and now he begins to serve the servants. The master serves the servants. Now understand, that sounds like a wonderful story. It sounds like a beautiful story of service, but for the disciples, they would have no way to be able to process the information that Jesus was giving them. Because in their culture, there was no such thing as a master serving servants. It never, ever happened that way in any level of culture. But yet, Jesus tells the story this way because this is the type of master that he is. If you remember in Mark, 
Mark records Jesus' teaching, and he says that the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see through his whole life that that's all he's doing. He's serving people through the Word. He's serving people by feeding them and healing them. There's never a part that we see him not serving in some particular capacity. And so what we find is we find at least two times when he was serving at table. One would be just a few weeks from now. And in telling this particular story, Jesus would gather his disciples together. They would observe uh, uh, the Passover feast. And they would have a meal. That's when he first initiated the Lord's Supper. And at the end of it, after feeding them and breaking bread with them, uh, what he does is he, he goes ahead and he girds up that, that, uh, his robe and he bows down and he begins to wash their feet. Again, something that was just so hard to understand on the part of the disciples. He's the master. They're the servants. What is he doing? And, and Jesus says, you do not understand what I'm doing for you now, but you will later. And then, of course, Peter, who likes to speak up at inappropriate times and say inappropriate things, what does he say to Jesus? He says, hey, listen, he goes, you will never do this for me. You're never, ever going to serve me in this particular way. And Jesus, in turn, tells him, he says, you need to understand, he goes, if you don't let me, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Peter says, then wash my whole body. And he's like, yeah, feet are good enough. You're good. All right. <laughs> But what was he saying? He was saying, hey, listen, if, if, if you want to have anything to do with me, if you want to have anything to do with the Heavenly Father, if you want anything to do with being reconciled, then you have to allow me to serve you. What was he talking about? He's talking about the cross. He says, I have to be your substitute. I have to stand in your place. You have to allow me to live the perfect life that you cannot. And then you have to allow me to die the death that you don't ultimately want to die. If I don't serve you in that way, we can have no fellowship one with another. But we know from the word of God that there is an eschatological supper that is going to happen. The first was the Lord's Supper. The second was the Lamb's Supper, or what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is going to happen at the end time, when God does uh, figure everything out, and he, he, he renews everything going on, and all judgments have been passed, the great white throne, throne judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. When all that is done, he will take those who were ready for his arrival, who were ready for his arrival, he will take them, and we will sit down and he will set a table before us, and guess what? He will serve the servants. It's mind-boggling. It's hard to imagine, but this is what Jesus says. This is the kind of servant that he ultimately is. But this, is, this, this reward is uniquely for those who are ready for him. But it's harder to be ready than what we might think. There are some obstacles that stand in the way. Two specific challenges. Number one, he may take longer than what any of us are expecting. He may take longer than what any of us are expecting. Look at verse 38. If he comes at the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So nighttime was broken up into different periods of watches. Uh, for the Romans, there were four. For the, for the Jews, there were three. The first watch took place from 6 to 9 at night, then the second from 9 to 12, the third from 12 until 3. So what he's saying is, we're not going to come early, we're going to come late, later than what you would expect, either really late at night or in the wee hours of the morning. But the idea is, you need to be ready. And so this is a warning to all. This is a warning to many that we've known, through, known to any professing Christian. It's not just about you starting a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about you finishing the relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about somebody walking an aisle, praying a prayer, being a part of a church, and then fading away over time. 
It's about a person who perseveres. And a person who perseveres, the Bible says, that it is they who persevere to the end. It is they who will be saved. So it's not just being ready at one portion of your life. It's to be ready at all times. But he may take longer than what you and I ever imagined. The second thing we see is that it comes, the second challenge is that he will come when we are, we are at least expecting him to come. Verse 39, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left the house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, Jesus identifies with the thief. He says, I'm like the thief. Now, not that he steals things that are not his own, but rather that his coming is unknown. His coming is unannounced. The thief doesn't say, hey, I'll be there at 9 a.m. Monday morning. Why? Because you'll be there as well. You'll be there prepared. And so what happens is for many people, they, they, they might say something of this, this way. If they do get robbed, they can find themselves saying, man, if I had only known that the thief was coming, I could have been there to be able to stop them. Well, here's the bottom line is, we do not know exactly when Jesus Christ is going to come. It could be 40 years from now. It could be 40 minutes from now. We just don't know. But here's the key. We have indeed been warned, beloved, that he is coming and we need to be prepared. And the bottom line is the only way truly to be prepared is to be born again. It's to make sure that you are in the faith, to make sure that you have agreed with God about who you are and what you've done, that we, created by God, given life by God, are guilty of breaking his law. We are lawbreakers against him. And because of that, we are deserving of the penalty that comes with that, and that is death. And yet, God, in his great grace, in his mercy, and in his love, sent his only son to die for you and I, so that if we did repent, turn from our sin, identify ourselves as sinners and place our faith in that completed work and say, you paid it all. I can't do it. I can't earn my way back. I can't pay for my own sin, but you paid it for me. And we place that in faith. We believe it by faith. Then we are ready for his appearing. But we can't wait. We can't sit back. There are people that come almost every week who sit there and know within their heart of hearts that something is not right. And for them, salvation is another time. It's another time in life. It's always being kicked. Hey, later in life, when I don't want to mess with, with what I'm messing with now, when I have more time at a later stage in life, but the beloved, we don't know if that time's either going to come, either because Jesus will beat us to it, or you and I, like the rich fool, our lives will be demanded of us at that particular moment. You know, I, um, don't tell my wife this. I know she's sitting here, but, <laughs> but she usually doesn't listen to what I'm saying in the, in the, in the person. So, so. See, if I would stick with my notes, I'd be better off. It's when I freestyle that I get in trouble. But, but hunting is so frustrating. Hunting. And uh, it's so frustrating. Like anybody who says that it's not frustrating is either lying or they don't hunt in Florida. Okay, that's, that's the two things. They're only choices. And in Florida, it's just so frustrating because when, when you're allowed to hunt, it's usually oftentimes you really just catch in kind of the end time when, when, when it's really good hunting, especially bow hunting. It's really not during the same time when, when the bucks are chasing the does and everything. Too much, too much information. But it's, it's just harder to be able to do. And it's hot. It's so hot. It's so humid. It's, it's, uh, there's bugs everywhere. There's mosquitoes like you would not believe. There's gnats. There's yellow flies biting chunks out of you all the time. You're, you're, you're doing this. You're trying to fight them all 
off. There's snakes almost every time I run into two or three of them, moccasins, uh, diamondback rattlesnakes whenever you're going into the woods. It's just miserable. And the worst part really about it is it's just one big, arduous, mind-numbing waiting game. You just kind of sit there and you just wait forever and you're just hoping that some deer is just going to walk down some trail at some specific time and you're going to be there at the right time to be able to eat him. All right, that's what you're waiting for. And, 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 and so two weeks ago, now this is at the end of the season. It's not really wise to, to hunt now. You're just kind of just wasting your time. But I was just, well, I do what I normally do. I take a climber and I, and I get it and I go, hey, that area looks pretty good. And so I go deep into the woods, wherever I can get. It could be through a swamp and I get up in a tree and it's 25, 30 feet up in the air. I try to get up as high as I can. And you're just kind of sitting up there. And usually at this time, I was up by 5 a.m. So I looked at my clock, it was about 5.05. I was up there early, I was ready. And, uh, and five hours went by, nothing. You're just sitting there. Now, here's the number one rule to hunting. The number one rule to hunting is this, is always be ready. That's great. Do you know how hard it is to always be ready in five hours? I mean, you, when you're first there, you're like, okay, it's dark. I can relax a little bit, but I'm, 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 listen, I, I'm listening. I, I heard it. I heard it. I heard it. Still two hours before I could take anything, but it's still, I, I, I heard it. And so you're just sitting there letting things happen. Finally, the lights come on and it's time. Legally, you can be able to hunt and nothing. Squat, nothing. Squirrels, of course, all over the place, whatever. If you're a squirrel hunter, you'd have it made, but just nothing is around. And finally, you just, you, you just get sidetracked. Does that make sense? It's just hard to be singularly focused like that. And so I begin to think about stuff and conversations we have. And I begin to think about this conversation that, that Pastor Dan and I had like last week. And, and we were thinking about, we were thinking about, um, oh, we were talking about this 90s movie uh, called uh, The Bodyguard uh, with Kevin Costner and uh, what's her name? Uh, Whitney Houston, that's it. Whitney Houston, that's, that's who it was. I forgot for a second. But Whitney Houston, and I begin to sit there and I go, I wonder what ever happened to that. I haven't seen him in a movie in a while. And I think she's passed away. I think that's right. So I get on and whatever reason, I'm on my phone looking at the bodyguard, right? And I'm looking at it and I'm kind of texting it. I'm going my way. And all of a sudden, I don't know what I did because I'm not good with electronic things, but I push something and all of a sudden I hear, and and it starts playing loud, I mean, on my phone, and I'm pushing, and I'm doing everything. And at that very moment, 20 yards in front of me, a buck bolts, and he begins to run, and there goes my opportunity. And it was one of the only ones I've gotten all year. And the point was, I wasn't ready, and I missed the reward. And here's the bottom line, beloved. The difference is there was no promise that a buck was going to show up that day, but there was every promise in the world that Jesus Christ is going to come again. It is an absolute, absolute. In Acts chapter 1, verse 10, the Bible says, And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, and behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus Christ, my friend, is coming again. That is absolutely certain. There is no doubt about it. Again, 40 years or 40 minutes or 40 seconds. And depending on whether you are judged or you receive, a word is dependent upon whether you are ready or not. Are you ready? The second thing that we see here is not only that we need to be ready, but we also need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. Look at verse 41. Peter asked Jesus the question. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Now, this is actually a pretty logical question if you've been following chapter 12. In chapter 12, what we find is that 
that Jesus sometimes is referring and speaking to the crowd as a whole. Other times he's speaking directly to his disciples. And so it would make sense for him at this point going, hey, who are you directing this to? And really what he wants to know is who's the faithful and who's the unfaithful? That's really what he's asking. I think he's hoping, hey, we apostles are the faithful. The crowds are the unfaithful. Well, maybe there's a mixture of the two. What is it? Well, Jesus, as he does many times, doesn't directly answer the question. Instead, he kind of indirectly answers the question by telling a yet another mini parable. And this time, this parable is, is very similar to the first that he told. It deals with servants and with masters. But it's different this time because the first one dealt with being ready. This one deals with being faithful. So the question is who you're talking about. He wants, Jesus now wants to explain what the faithful look like. So in verse 42, he says, Who then is the faithful and the wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? So again, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, those faithful servants, they're faithful and they're wise managers. Now that word manager uh, can be also translated steward. A manager or steward is a servant of God, but they're kind of like the chief manager or servant of that particular master. And so they overlook. The master actually entrusts them with all their affairs and their money and their assets and even other servants. So when that master goes away, that, that, that servant or that manager has a great deal of freedom and power. Everything that is the master's has now been entrusted to him for the purpose of investing and expanding the purposes of the master. Not his own, but his master's. None of this is his own. He's merely a steward of what has been entrusted with him. And this master will go off for a period of time to do business, to travel from place to place. And if he comes back... And if this servant was faithful with all that he was trusted with, he's not only commended, but he's also promoted. Jesus says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And so, beloved, we understand that Jesus is the master. You and I are the manager. That you and I, beloved, listen, have been trusted with a great deal. Skills, abilities, giftedness, money, time, opportunities, all of those which are rightfully God has now been given to us. You and I are managing it. And he wants to know when he returns, how well did you and I do in promoting and propagating his fame and his gospel? This is, this, is, this is the reality. That's what he wants to see. How well did we do? And what do we do with it? Well, we, we, we serve him. We do all that he's called us to do with it. One author writes, if we are God's servants, then we need to be busy teaching God's word. Amen? We need to be healing the sick, feeding the hungry, visiting prisoners, caring for children, helping the elderly, and doing whatever humble service we have the ability and the opportunity to do. Time is short, and we need to make the most of it. The Son of Man may come today, tonight, or tomorrow, but whenever he comes, Jesus says, we must be ready and serving. We have to be serving when he comes. Now, I, I will say this. I don't know how to do that in its greatest extent. It becomes more challenging when we've gone through what we've gone through for the last year and a half. 
When there is a COVID, it's hard to know what to do. We don't even know what it was in the beginning. We don't want to make people sick. We don't want to, we, you know, we're, we're trying to stay apart. Now, we've kind of come back together. We understand a little bit more what it is, but people are still getting sick. There are still people who are vulnerable in different ways. I acknowledge that it's become difficult, but it has not become impossible. But I think so many believers are acting as though it's impossible. They're acting as though, you know what, I'm just going to wait. Time for service will come when COVID is all cleared up and we're all back to normal. There may not be another normal. And in the midst of this non-normal, Jesus Christ might very well come back. And the question is, are we faithful? Are we actingly serving? Certainly that's in our home. Certainly that's in our business. Certainly that's to our spouse and to our kids. But certainly it has to do with serving one another in the church as well, does it not? It's not excluding the church, but it certainly includes the church in our gathering as well. So those who are faithful, those who are found busy doing the work of Jesus Christ when he comes, he says they'll be blessed and they'll be promoted. But not everybody is faithful. Look at verse 45. Now he talks about the unfaithful. He says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and the female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, and the master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him and in an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and he will put him with the unfaithful. Jesus is describing somebody who claims to be a servant of Jesus Christ, but in actuality, it shows that he is not because he was not about doing the father's business when Jesus ultimately returns. What was he doing instead? Well, he was quite self-centered. He kept delaying. You know, for some people, service to God is always something that they're gonna do later in life. When you're young, you're like, well, look, I wanna get married first before I really begin to serve Jesus. You get married, then you're like, well, wait a minute, we, we, we need to have kids. And then you have kids and you're like, we're too busy to be able to serve anything. And then you sit there and say, when I get older, I'll do it. When then we get older, then we're like, man, I just, I've got all this money all stored up. I need to be able to go and really enjoy myself and have a good time. Or, hey, I'm just so tired right now. There's no way that I'm gonna be able to serve. And a whole lifetime has gone by without truly serving the Lord Jesus Christ and doing what God has called us to do. And then we find the, the, the word of God here. It's not only that, but it's also mistreating people. And notice that he says that he will beat the male and female servants. Now, nobody's gonna sit there and go, well, I've never done anything like that. But in, in a way that we have, God has entrusted you and I with finances and abilities and, and opportunity and skills to be able to minister to people who do not have and are in worse shape in which we are. And so if we abstain and keep those things selfishly to ourselves, it is, again, causing blows to that individual, not directly, but indirectly because of our inactivity. And so he comes and he says the rest. He, he, then he takes everything that God has given to him and he's just served. He's just spent the whole thing on himself drinking and eating and the good life and all these things. That's how, he's, that's how he's spent all that God has ultimately entrusted him with. Look at verse 47. And of course, we know he's not gonna be blessed. He says that, oh, let me, let me say this. He's also gonna be destroyed at the end of verse 45 or 46 there. He says, and it's funny because people will argue, commentators, well, is this a believer or is it not a believer? I believe it's an unbeliever. Why? The last sentence. And when he comes, he will cut him in pieces and he will put him with the unfaithful. If you're with the unfaithful, who are you? You're the unfaithful, you're unbelievers. Now, note, there's gonna be a distinction. Look at verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know 
and did not deserve and did not deserve a beating or and what deserved a beating excuse me will receive a light beating everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more jesus is answering the skeptic and many believers who ask the question what about those people who live in places who have no gospel no access to the gospel no access to the word of god and it is hard for us to understand and get our minds theologically around the idea that there are people who will live, who will be born, live and die apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, never hearing it, and they too will be condemned to hell. Not because they rejected Jesus, but because of their sin. We get that. But what Jesus makes clear here is there will be a distinction. There will be a distinction between those who are condemned, who know Christ, in other words, they've heard of him, they've heard the gospel, they've received all kinds of spiritual benefits, and those who have never heard, those who have heard, who have every spiritual benefit, they will receive a severe beating, but those who don't will receive the lighter beating. Now, either way, hell is not a place you want to go to. But he does recognize that there is more that is required of those who have been entrusted with more. Beloved, let me ask you this question. In this picture, are we those... Right now, are we those who have been entrusted with more? Or are you and I those who have been entrusted with less? Which would you say? Just by living in the country in which we live, we live in the greatest, we, we have the greatest access to biblical truth than any other nation in world history. You and I have the greatest freedoms and religious freedoms of any country in human history. You and I have the greatest wealth and sharing the greatest wealth of any country in history. Beloved, there is no doubt that you and I, everyone in here, is the one who has been given much. Therefore, much is required. So let me ask you this. Are you actively serving Jesus Christ? Are you actively using what he's entrusted you to make much of him? Or is it all in serving yourself? I don't know about you, but when he comes back, I not only want to be ready, but I want to be found faithful. My wife and I, um, we got married. That's what I was going to say, but obviously we got married. Uh, again, some 23 years ago. And uh, we went on our honeymoon, and uh, we, we didn't have any money, to be honest with you, at the time. And we were like, what do you want to do? And we're like, well, we'd like to go here, here, and here. He says, well, how much money do we have? Well, we can stay here. Uh, that's what we could do on our honeymoon. That's about it. Somebody was super, super nice to us. Uh, they just kind of just talked, and they were like, hey, where are you guys going? Oh, we don't know. You know, don't, don't know. We didn't want to say we're poor. Uh, we felt bad, and they were like, they were like well, listen, if, if, if you guys aren't doing anything, because we got, a, we got a little ski place that you guys could go to, and you kind of, you know, go and whatever. And we're like, hey, fantastic place to go. And so my wife likes to travel. We went up there and, uh, and it was bitter cold. There was an ice storm that had, like, hit. So you really couldn't go. Over, you, we were good just to get there, and then it was hard to drive around. It was hard to do anything. And then, and then of course, uh, I think we were in it three or four days. And then all of a sudden, we found out that the next day, another ice storm was coming. And we were like, ah, I don't know if this is what we, where we want to stay. So we came home early. When we came home early, we, we saw Larissa's mom's car parked out of my apartment, had a little apartment house that they had converted and, and, and out there. And so we were so excited to see her and we went up and she saw us and she was shocked, but she was so disappointed. See, the guys that say that were in my wedding, the, 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 the bridegrooms were slobs. 
And so when the two days before we left, they stayed there. Two days after we left, they stayed there. And you can imagine a bunch of college-age guys. I mean, it was just a wreck. So my, my mother-in-law realized that they're going to come home to this wrecked house, and I need to get over there, and I need to clean it for them so that they come back and they can, they can come with this nice house. So she's over there trying to clean this thing, clearly not knowing how much work was to be done. And so she began to work, and when she walked in, she just kind of began to cry, and she was so disappointed that she wasn't able to finish the task that, we, that, 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 that she wanted to fulfill. And, and she was so sad because she wanted to have it all perfect when she came, but she was shocked by our coming. And beloved, this is the way that I view this. I don't think you and I are ever gonna, at least in our minds, fulfill everything that we feel like God has called us to be able to do. But when he comes, let him surprise us in the midst of Elise trying to do it and achieve it. Beloved, are you ready if he comes, you and I need to be living in a way that is in constant anticipation that he can come at any time, knowing that he can come today, knowing that he can come tomorrow, not sitting back and go, it's been so long. We never know when he's going to come. No, it could be at any time. This is the command of God. But we can only be ready if you know Christ. And the evidence in whether you know Christ is how you and I, what we're doing with what God has entrusted us with, that's the fruit of what true salvation is all about. Are you ready? And are you faithful? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the time that we have. And before we take of the Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus, I just ask that you would help us to do business with you. God, if there be some who are here that just keep kicking down the path, this idea of salvation. Maybe one day, maybe one day, that day may never come. God, for many of us who have just not been faithful, have become stagnant, just become lethargic, Lord, maybe because of what's happening around us in our service to one another. God, let us turn and be able to use everything for your glory. In your precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. We'll take a moment to reflect, then we'll jump right into the Lord's Supper. I'll be down here if you want some prayer.